Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Sutra is here, uh, closing out the year with part two of the Marty Pasco conversation. Uh, we had it right before Christmas. It ended up being four hours long. It's always a, a good like afternoon that he and I spend together via Skype. And uh, we end up talking about a lot of different things uh, because of his varied career, not just as a writer for DC Comics, but years of television writing, animation writing, so many interesting stories, and at a really interesting time, too, from the 80s through working with DC Entertainment, compiling the DC Properties catalog, which created one-page treatments of all the DC characters and features to potentially exploit as television shows and films. Marty's going to answer some uh, Word Balloon audience questions. We talk more about Alfred Hitchcock, Wonder Woman, various stories about television shows and some of the old stars that uh, Marty had encounters with, the DC and Marvel film and television universes, and a lot of memories of the Batman animated series. Great two hours of Marty Pasco uh, hanging out and kicking back in uh, part two. If you didn't hear part one, uh, Marty gave us a, a few ideas, too, of uh, what he thinks of modern comics and what he's looking for as he uh, continues to uh, consider ideas for either novels or comic books. So uh, real good stuff from Marty Pasco uh, on today's Word Balloon, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. Whether it's been through uh, the Patreon account at patreon.com slash wordballoon, where you can subscribe to Word Balloon, or if you use the Amazon book portal at wordballoon.com, um, thank you. You've uh, all supported the show a lot. I really appreciate it. I also thank you for letting your friends know that you like Word Balloon. They might like Word Balloon as well. Lots of new listeners. I hear from them via social media and emails, and uh, that's great, and also conventions as well. So thank you for spreading the word. Uh, and as I always say, if you can help out, uh, go to iTunes and write a review and rate the show uh, if you haven't done it before or haven't done it lately. Um, they wiped out about 150 of my reviews and ratings, and I'd like to get that number back up again, please. So uh, that'd be great if you could go to iTunes, and that's how you get Word Balloon. Uh, also, Word Balloon is brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There are great deals of the week happening. In fact, uh, the after Christmas sale is going on now through uh, New Year's Eve. You can save 45% on DC, Marvel, Image, and Dark Horse books. Also, Moonstone Titan, Udon, and more are up to 70% off. Select IDW titles are up to 70% off. Same goes for uh, some Dark Horse books. Image titles, select image titles are up to 50% off. Uh, DCB variants through Discount Comic Book Service are up to uh, 50% off as well. Um, check out more details at InStockTrades.com. Okay, let's uh, get back to our conversation with Marty Pasco. It's been fun. We uh, pick up where we left off, which was a bit about uh, Alfred Hitchcock being a puppeteer when it came to actors. He goes into more details, so you'll hear the beginning of what was the end of, of part one to reestablish uh, what we were talking about. But let's go back to uh, just a couple of days ago, me and Marty Pasco talking right before Christmas on Word Balloon. The whole thing about Hitchcock was that he was a puppeteer. Literally, he he, he he couldn't work with actors. He preferred to get, you know, experienced actors who knew what they were doing and they would just leave them alone. Sure. Diane McBain talks about how he had a, a, a wonderful idea, I mean, a wonderful way of speaking metaphorically, 
but sometimes she would get it and sometimes she, she wouldn't. And he, she watched him directing a woman in a party scene where he wanted a certain uh, frozen uh, look on her face like she's trying to be polite but she's ready to kill somebody. And Hitchcock says to her, I want you to smile as if you have a mouthful of broken china. <laughs> and she said, I, I would have gotten that as an actress. But then when she had to be framed in a window for a reaction shot, Hitchcock just walked up to her and manipulated the muscles of her face <laughs> as if she were a piece of modeling clay. Wow. And so he finally got her face in exactly the position he wanted, and he said, that's what I'm going to shoot, and he did. And wow. she tells this on the DVD of Marnie, and she's totally okay with it. So that's an example of an actor, a rare actor, who didn't mind being directed by a puppeteer. Has it come out yet in L.A.? I don't think it comes out in Chicago until Christmas Day. But uh, the uh, Hitchcock Truffaut documentary based on those amazing oral uh, interviews that they did with each other. uh, Is this actors recreating it? No, it's a documentary exploring the conversations. And I imagine it will have... Oh, oh, oh. Modern filmmakers reacting to the discussion, right? And a lot, of, but yeah, and a lot of, of a, and a lot of stills with the camera panning over them because it's, right. it's audio. Because right, 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 right. yeah, because the audio is available for people listening on archive.org, or at least it used to be, mm-hmm. and I believe it still is because I think it is in public domain or whatever. And it, it is this amazing Marty. I'm sure knows what I'm talking about, but yeah, it's these like Truffaut was as much of a film journalist as he was a filmmaker. Oh, sure. And, and and brought Hitchcock in in, I forget what year in the 60s, to sit down and literally go film by film and have these like two weeks of, of very long conversations about each movie. And it's fascinating to listen to because there's an English to French translator uh, involved. Right. And, you know, yeah, it's great. And it's been, you know, the transcripts have been written of, of these interviews. And, and it's this great like body of, of interview that I'm sure filmmakers have been studying ever since. Mm-hmm. It's you know it happened and stuff, and now a documentary is being made about the conversation, mm, or coming out, I should say. It's already made, and I know it's playing on the coasts. And I checked around, and yeah, Chicago doesn't get it till Christmas week. Well, the, the reason I ask is that, that there is a film version in very very early stages of development, uh, based on the book that uh, John Michael Hayes wrote about working with Hitchcock called Conversations with Hitch- Hitchcock. And, oh, that's cool. And at another point, there was an attempt, and then I didn't hear anything about it, uh, to make a film version of Donald Spoto's book, Hitchcock, The Dark Side of Genius. Um, but then when the, the, the Hitchcock uh, project with... Uh, uh, God. Anthony, yeah, Anthony, help me here. Anthony. Anthony Hopkins, 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 and, and, and Helen Mirren playing yes, Alpha. Right, yes. Which is a huge piece of idealized casting, of course. But yeah, oh, I, no shit. I know it was so disappointing. I mean, because Alma, it really is a disservice to Alma Hitchcock because she was this tiny. You see her in the AFI tribute to Hitchcock and everything. This tiny little woman yeah. that you have no idea the the gigantic brain that was in that little frame and how much Hitchcock truly respected it. Right. And also, you know, if, if the stories are true, you know, he came as the inexperienced filmmaker. She was the experienced script girl yeah. that had been on a million sets and really kind of helped him well, she was his, become the great. Yeah, she, yes. she was his boss. Yeah. Yes. No, she was his boss. Yeah. Initially. Yes. Right. When, when he, he first, first joined. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I, I love that film. Even, um, you know, even if Helen Mirren, 
um, is 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 a very glamorized, uh, you know, portrayal of, of yes. Helen. <laughs> and she's I love Helen Mirren, but she's basically playing Helen Mirren like she usually does or has in the last like. 10 to 15 years of her career. Well, there's, you know. there's, there are a number of actresses who would have been closer in physical type. I, um, I know the, I'm, I'm blanking on her last name, Staunton. Uh, I know the Staunton. Do you know who that is? No. What, uh, what which she, is probably she, why she wasn't considered for the role. How about Linda Hunt? I think Linda Hunt would have been an excellent Alma I don't think Alma was that short. I mean, well, fine. Put her on an apple crate oh, or something. Geez. But but she she was a tiny little woman. No. Uh, Alma Hitchcock seemed to be this tiny little woman. Well, there are other actresses who could have who could have done it. But the the the, the point is, I, I just think she's terrific in the role. I think they're both terrific together. But what I love about that film is the way they make it into a love story of this guy who is so emotionally repressed. Hitchcock, True. That the only way that he can express his profound love for her is through the collaboration. And yet True. she refused to take credit, uh, except on rare occasion. Uh, I think she's one of the three uh, credited screenwriters on, if not Saboteur, then an, another picture that he made early when he first uh, came to America. And, oh, interesting. And, okay. and she has a credit, I think, on Stage Fright, which was the first picture he made in England after he had moved to uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, to America, I, I'm not sure about that. Um, Stage fright, of course, is the film in which she worked with uh, Whitfield Cook, who is the guy that Hitchcock thinks he, she's having an affair with. In, in, Danny Houston in the film. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, I just I love that idea that in their collaboration they were in complete control of their films. And one of the things that's so interesting, it's a mystery. I'll be very curious to see in all of this Hitchcock stuff that's being done, if anybody sheds any light on it, to go back to the thing we were talking about, John Michael Hayes. Uh, Hitchcock and he worked together successfully on four films. And then something happened, and not even Elma Revel knew what it was. Maybe she found out later, I don't know, but I remember reading her was at some point after Hitchcock's death telling this story that they found themselves seated together at some sort of screening at some sort of Hollywood event and Hitch was on one side, Alma was in the middle and John Michael Hayes was on the opposite side of Alma and he and Hitchcock refused to even look at Hayes, wouldn't even acknowledge him and she said I could never understand what happened or why that was because they worked so well together. And she just seemed totally mystified by it. Huh. Well, I have a theory, and it's purely a theory. The thing that distinguished their collaboration was that Alma Revel never had to touch it. And in other words, the two of them worked together so well that Hitch didn't need Alma Revel to punch up the script, which she did many, many times. And I'm wondering about that love story. Maybe he felt, I'll work with somebody that I need her help with. I don't know. Interesting, yeah, to give her something because but, he missed her, but, her collaboration. But on interesting. But on Psycho, you know, she did uh, a major rewrite on that, and both uh, Ernie Lehman 
never. I love Ernest Lehman. I, I I love the you know the scripts. He never he, he never talked about being rewritten. He just talked about the interesting process of working with Hitchcock. Because basically, uh, what his job was on North by Northwest was to just string together the set pieces. Sure. Hitchcock would say, "I want to have Cary Grant out racing a crop duster," and then Lehman's job was to figure out. You know how to create the connective tissue between that and the scene at the auction or whatever it was that you know, sure. Did. Uh, but both uh, uh, Evan Hunter, who did the screenplay for The Birds, okay, and Jay Preston Allen, what a wonderful, wonderful writer, who did the screenplay for Marnie, uh, talk about ha- you know there had been some rewrites, but in the early stages of the process, Hitchcock worked very, very closely with them, gave him his initial thoughts, and then left them alone. And I think it, with, with writers, that's another example of Hitchcock, um, you know, as I say, getting people who knew what they were doing and then leaving them alone, Pro- probably in the writing area because he knew he had Alma Revel as his hip pocket. You know, he could always count on her uh, to do a, a, an actual polish if necessary. But, of course, I'm sure she was involved with the, uh, the story development process all along. And I've never actually read uh, either uh, Hitchcock Truffaut or, or, uh, or um, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever the, uh, the Bogdanovich book is called. Um, so I wonder, I wonder if any of those interviews shed any light on any of these questions. But what I'd like to see is an in-depth interview with Alma Revel. Well, I haven't been able to find one anywhere. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, who who had the uh, smartness to to sit her down? It would would she have been willing to really sit down? I doubt it. And, and, I doubt it because she was. Yeah, she was comfortable being, um, you know, the silent partner. And and yes. I think, and I think. By the time she might have felt comfortable doing that, she simply wasn't able to, having had a stroke um, a few years before Hitch, Hitchcock died. She outlived him by another two years. But uh, yeah, I was going to ask. I wasn't sure because she did look, you know, rather frail at the uh, at that AFI thing, and that wasn't yes. much before his death as well. Uh, that was actually, I believe, the same year he died, 1980. There you go. Yeah, um, yeah. She she had had a stroke. And he was perfectly happy to just, you know, take, to man. take care of her. Well, his heart had gone out of filmmaking a long time ago. Sure. Well, yeah, no, yeah. You know, I keep wanting to re-see Family Plot. I, I oh. still haven't. Oh, my. I haven't seen it since it came out. Oh, my God. I think I saw it, or when it was first on V. Actually, I don't think I initially saw it until it was first on, like, video rental back in the late 70s or early 80s. The, the, I, Is it rough? I, Is it hard? I can't believe that. Uh, the master negative looks like that. I have to believe that that picture um, is is in desperate need of re- restoration because the last time I saw it, it was so grainy. It looked like it, you know, it was a thirty five millimeter print struck from like you know a a, a, a dupe print from a sixteen millimeter print. It kind of in the way that a lot of the uh, syndicated night galleries are so washed out and just look like hell. I'm guessing. <laughs> Because they do, they they they're they're just in such poor state, uh, such a poor state. It, and plus, it doesn't help that a lot of the writing sucks as well. You know, I, well, night gallery is night gallery, man. No, you know something. There are some. It's it's tough amongst the shit to find the the the, the nuggets of gold. There's a couple there, and there aren't that many. But there are a couple uh, great something stories. Something besides they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar. That's one of them. I love that story. Cold Storage is actually, a, I think, an interesting wow. Uh, wow. night gallery. You really know that show, don't you? Hey, man. No, you, uh, Marty, this is you, this is why I do the podcast. I love all this shit. Now I finally got a, a forum that I can talk about it with 
creative people and the fans that, that agree and want to listen and, and, you know, write back and give their comments in the talk back and stuff. Yeah, there's, I mean, that's the thing. It's forever. And this is, and again, I appreciate your point of view because as you say, forever, it was the suits that would fuck up the good ideas that, that uh, people who love these genres were coming up with. And nope, not relatable enough to a mass audience, cost too much, all these other things. All these barriers are finally, it seems, coming down. Yeah. And we're in this amazing new golden age of the acceptance of ideas and also the ability to uh, produce them technically mm-hmm. to to rise to the level of the idea. And this is great, but it's great to hear the obstacles. And it's, you know, I mean, that's the thing. And there's a suspension of disbelief that I, I think all of us sci-fi and fantasy uh, fans have had to kind of always parse uh, our love of the old stuff. And kids will see Doctor Who from the 60s and 70s and how ridiculous it looked. And it's like, yeah, but the writing is so good. And we're like, all right, it is a stuffed animal puppet that's supposed to be the monster. Okay, fine. It doesn't matter. It's it's still a good story and the acting's good enough. And, you know, or Shatner believing in that piece of uh, cardboard that's supposed to be a rock, you know, <laughs> things like that. I mean, you, you did. You rolled with it because we had no choice. And now it's like, oh, God, they're finally starting to make, you know, and again, there's still shit that's being produced. We all know that. But there are good ideas. And um, what happens, though, you know, is I think um, for most people, our tastes become more sophisticated and it's difficult to appreciate uh, what was done previously because sure. you know, the, I mean television writing back then was so bang on the nose anyway the earliest stuff was radio with pictures obviously right right um, and then they went through a period where uh, in the late 50s and early 60s where I'm talking about episodic television here not the golden age you know Okay, so you know, not, not, yeah, not to have know, I'm, not, I'm not talking about Patty Chayefsky or... Studio One, exactly. Playhouse 90. Right, right. Uh, I'm just talking about bread and butter television. It, okay. it went through a period where the most prestigious stuff um, was the stuff that pushed the envelope on subject matter, but was still kind of preachy and intensely dramatic and still very heavy and expository dialogue. And I'm talking about, when I say the prestigious stuff, I'm talking about the shows that were winning, the hour-long dramatic uh, shows that were winning Emmys um, when I was a, the defenders. a very little kid. Yes. All of the Herb Brodkin stuff. The nurses, which later became the doctors and the nurses. And uh, uh, per- Would Perry Mason qualify? Mm, Maybe not. <laughs> I wouldn't say that that was, that was prestigious. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, defenders was doing shows on abortion. Right. Was doing shows on um, you know, uh, racial discrimination, um, you know, police brutality. Sure. You know, the, East side, west side. I, 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 don't, mean just, like I don't mean just racial discrimination. I mean the specific idea of the legal system being biased against minorities. Sure. If they were tackling stuff that they would have never been able to get away with if they hadn't been on for most of the run at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. You know, it was again. It was that, or or Saturday. It was on at ten o'clock on a on a weeknight, a weekend rather, for a very long time. And I suspect that it was a case of nobody's watching, so we can get away with that. Um, but that kind of stuff. And Route sixty six is another example of uh, Sterling Silifat. Is that his name? Uh, yeah, uh, was the the creator and, and writer of many of the episodes. Yeah, our our mutual buddy uh, Hillary Barda. Oh. 
massive, massive Sterling Silifad fan. And yeah, where he's always, you know, Naked City mm-hmm. Route 66. Mm-hmm. We've, uh, we've created a lot of comments um, on Facebook. I've seen about, that. I follow you both, exactly. Well, I, uh, I, uh, I'm so envious of, of Hillary when he tells me about there's a, um, uh, a film noir society in Chicago. Yep. That has screenings of strictly, uh, freshly struck <laughs> prints of noirs that I've been trying to see, you know, and I'm just so envious. I mean, it's like, it's a stupid reason to move to Chicago. But <laughs> uh, anyway, that one. Um, no, this, but again, these are the kind of great <laughs> stories that inspire your guys' work, and I know, I think that's too cool. You know, you do have another two-parter here, <laughs> Oh, I'm well aware. I'm happy to keep going, because we haven't really gotten to those questions that okay. people wanted to ask. Well, why, don't we, why don't we do that, and let me stop meandering all over the place. And, okay. Um, all right, let me get the fast ones out of the way. Okay. Really wants, uh, Jeremy Slagoth asks, really want to know what he thinks about the new Superman-Batman movie coming our way. And I know you don't have much to say about that, but feel free. No, I, Affleck looks good in the suit. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, Henry Cavill is Henry Cavill. All right. And I am interested in seeing what they do with Wonder Woman. Yeah, I want to, yes, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, you can't screw it up any worse than, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, David E. Kelly? Yes, thank you. Okay, with Adrian Pilecki and everything. Yeah, I, oh. I, did you watch that pilot? I never watched it. Oh, oh really? Was that Well, bad? let's put it this way. I stopped watching that pilot. Wow. All right, man. Because David E. Kelly, for Christ's sake, great writer. Great writer on other things. Yes, but, you know, you could argue. This, that, is, a, this is other well, things. Getting, yeah. getting David E. Kelly to, to tackle superheroes is, you know, I, I don't know. I was going to say, like, you know, Getting Chuck Lorre to handle a really – never mind. I won't even go there. NYPD I'm Blue struggling. or something like that. Yeah, it's just – it's a real fish out of water kind of a thing. I'm but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason I say I'm interested is fidelity to the current incarnation of the character in the comics is going to become such a culture shock for people who only know from Linda Carter. So that's why, you know, because of the way all of the suggestions of, uh, yeah, I guess, bisexuality uh, on the part of the character, um, because she still, you know, she was at least romantically involved with Superman there for a while. Yes. Um, her, the, the emphasis on the Amazon warrior as opposed to if you'll remember in the the earlier version of the character she was to bring peace and love to man's world you know uh, uh, gifted by Aphrodite you know and yes. the, the whole uh, effort to bridge the Greek mythology underpinnings with um, what we historically believe about Amazon warriors uh, has created a, a, a very, very different property. I mean, it's really only Wonder Woman in, in name only, and or, again, let me back up. Not my version of Wonder Woman. I'm talking about, you know, compared to the Marston 
the original monster. Yes, yes, which is ridiculously fascinating. Go on. The, the current version of the character is so completely different from anything yes. that anyone knows um, that I'll, I'll be very curious to see whether this is another case of cherry cherry picking things from the continuity. But from what I can tell, it's got a lot of what I, little I've seen in terms of images. It's it's got a lot of that Amazon's attack kind of vibe going on, you know. Interesting. Uh, interesting. So it'll be very interesting to see. But other than that, now you see, there are short questions and they're brief ones, and you're getting them out of the way. But I'll figure out a way to, you know, make ten. <laughs> That's all right. Go on. No, next, no. Next question. Um, someone asks uh, Patrick Herman asks, seen it in writing, but would love to hear about your friendship with Alan uh, Brennert. Mm-hmm. And I don't know Alan Brennert. <laughs> Is that for our part two? Is that should we hold this to? I sp- well, spell the last name because I'm B R E N N E R T. Okay, I just want to make sure I heard it correctly because there's Alan I, Burnett. I know. I right, wondered exactly. if it was Alan Burnett as well. Uh, oh man, uh, yes, uh, yeah, right. It, it is a question that's like a, a subject unto itself. Alan Burnett was a guy I met, so to speak, in Julie Schwartz's letter columns, and we lived together. I mean, not lived together. We lived near each other. <laughs> <laughs> when we were in high school. And, okay. Um, we started corresponding. We became friendly. We did a fanzine together. And Alan went on to become uh, a very successful novelist and screenwriter and was the guy who I owe uh, my time in Hollywood to, uh, along with Steve Gerber and, and Mark Evanier, uh in animation. But in live action, I mean, Alan was the guy. I was deeply depressed. My girlfriend had been at the time had been killed in a traffic accident in the late 70s. And I was looking for change, and, and basically Alan said, look, look, you've been wanting to do this. You've been wanting to come out here. Come out here. We need you. We need writers like you. He had been on Wonder Woman. And when I showed up, he was on Buck Rogers as the story editor. Wow. And the big problem they were having was they weren't finding writers who could plug in science fiction tropes to the shows that they were doing uh, because the network had decided that what was wrong, and this is a classic example of the kind of thing that um, that goes on when you get people like Fred Freiberger uh, in, 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 but in Bruce Lansbury's case, he was the, uh, the, the supervising producer. Yes. In Bruce's case, he was savvy enough to know how to be flexible in response to the wacky notes from the network. Um, Bruce was the guy who, in fact, small world, succeeded Fred Freiberger on Wild Wild West. And when I got there, Bruce was being told by the network that Buck Rogers was gunsmoke in space to the extent that they actually were taking old gunsmoke plots and dropping in. No, really. I believe it. I've heard this about other shows. Go on. Buck is uh, Buck is Dylan. Uh, uh, Doctor Hewer is Doc. Uh, Wilma is <laughs> it's Kitty. Is Kitty. <laughs> and 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 Chester Chester and or Festus was Tweaky. <laughs> that's fantastic. God, that's wow. How good so, guy. Alan is so, telling me. Alan is telling me. <laughs> They're driving us crazy. They're driving us crazy. We can't get writers who understand the science fiction tropes. So on. Is your spec ready yet? Is your spec ready yet? And I keep saying, well, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Finally, a couple of weeks later, and this is at the end of my first year in L.A., he calls me and he says, how's the script going? 
And I said, well, I've got 60 pages, but I mean, you know, that's only half of the script. Alan says, hold for a second. He puts me on hold. And he comes back about, you know, about a minute and a half later. And he says, send it to me. Bruce will read it. I went, what? No, send it to me. So they, they sent the messenger over. Bruce started reading the thing. And he trusted Alan so much. He just looked up. He said, well, he can write. Bring him in. Fantastic. So I walked in and he said, there's an episode in which Matt Dillon is going out for a bounty out in the, you know, the, the, the frontier or whatever, you know. Right. Yeah. Search it. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's his birthday and everybody back at the, the saloon is throwing a surprise birthday for him. And my job was to – who was the villain? What was some kind of you – know, it, was, it was my job to do that thing that, that, that Freiberger, Freiberger called the really bizarre element or uh, the unusual villain. And because it was more uh, ostensibly science fiction, you put the two together. And I just – you know, I walked in. Uh, you know, he, he tells me this and he says, can you come up with it? And I said, well, sure. He said, fine. Um, oh, it's quarter of 12. How about after lunch? <laughs> Wow. Welcome to television. I walked into Alan's office. <laughs> and we literally, I say, you know, I sat there for about five minutes ticking it off. Uh, you've done the psionics. You've done this. You've done that. You've, you've, uh, what about a transmute? And Alan's light, eyes light up. We haven't done a transmute yet. And I walked back into the office and Bruce says, what have you got? I said, it's a transmute. What's that? And I explained, someone who can telekinetically change molecules. Uh, and he said, how does that work in visually and because of my comic book background i said it and also the film background i said it's a simple camera lockdown sure the buck's chasing him he just turns around waves his hand through the air and then suddenly a wall appears and he gets away while buck has to shoot his blaster through the wall and he does stuff like this very simple uh, camera effects but they're unusual and he looked right and he just looked at me and said write it <laughs> and that began my career so, and Alan and I are really, really close friends uh, to this day. And in fact, he was one of the people who was uh, at that Twilight Zone event the other day. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. That's cool. And again, no, I love I love Buck Rogers. And again, for I mean, it's it's one of those shows again that you see it now, and you're like, oh boy. But uh, but again, it's like these struggles that you guys had with big ideas and budget, and you just gave a classic example of that. How do we shoot that? How do we make that make sense with the technology we have? Well, yeah. It's, of course, at Universal, it was more complicated than that. Uh, when redressing a corridor, <laughs> I was writing. I was writing these scenes where it was this labyrinthine set of tunnels underneath the city, where the, we, you know, people could run and shoot at each other. And I, I thought it would be cheaper than you know a location or whatever. And I learned, no, no, it actually costs about one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars to redress a corridor. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that was my edu- my education in union shooting. You got a you got another question for me? I do. Uh, uh, li- oh, and I wanted to ask before we leave, Buck Rogers, okay. did you get to meet uh, Buster Crab uh, no. when he made his cameo? Because <laughs> no. I, dude, I am a I'm a Flash Gordon fan as well. Got to meet Buster Crab when I was twelve, and it's I, honestly meeting him and meeting Clayton Moore as a child. <laughs> 
it, the, those ep- those moments convinced me that's why I'm still a comic book fan because I met real superheroes. I met the Lone Ranger. <laughs> I met Buck Rogers at Flash Gordon, no. and they were and God, especially Buster Crabbe, even in his 60s or right. 70s, had that Olympian body. Now the, yeah, and it was just scary about how like well like this was like just this hero, this ancient hero. The Buster Crab story. I mean, the Buster Crab episode uh, was shot before I got involved, and okay, I wasn't around okay. For that. Uh, no, I uh, I had fun with Dorothy Stratton. She wasn't in my episode, but that's another story. Oh, wow, lucky you! Uh, no, God. no, 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 not that kind of. Fun. <laughs> Not that kind of fun at all. No, no. I, well, but even appreciating her up close, I mean, my God. No, the fun I had from Dorothy Stratton was that I, I was stuck doing the <laughs> because the writing staff basically quit because they couldn't stand Gil Gerard. Uh, wow, I was crazy. I was stuck doing my own rewrites of, of my script, and I would, <laughs> and the director of my episode, which was next in the rotation, was also the director of the Dorothy Stratton episode that was shooting. And I kept saying, Sig, when are we going to talk? When are we going to talk? He says, I can't, I can't, I can't. It's driving me crazy. I said, what's the matter? She says, she can't talk. Said, what do you mean? Wow. She can't talk. What, what does that mean? She says, we're going to have to loop her. The whole thing is going to be somebody else's voice. Wow. And the poor woman, she was very, very sweet. But not a lot of talent there. And then she went on Johnny Carson to promote the show. And Carson was being very, you know, very sweet and very solicitous of her. And he said to her, what was it like seeing yourself on screen? And her answer was, I didn't know I sounded like that. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, and then those, that week on the Universal lot was a great deal of fun because the show was being shot down the, down the street from Quincy. And uh, Klugman. yes, Klugman's habit uh, every day before lunch would be to fire the writing staff. <laughs> I've heard that. Yes, and then, he went through them. And, yes. and then come back and rehire them. And that was kind of interesting because one of the major writers on the show was his own brother. So he was there. So whenever I heard him talk about that, yes, whenever Gil Gerard, whenever Gil Gerard would come to come over to Bruce, usually, which was rare, but apparently it happened one time when I was there. Usually, you had to go to. Gil's trailer, right? I got it in stereo. I'm, I'm listening to Gil Gerard screaming at Bruce Lansbury from two doors away, and then from down the hall is Jack Klugman. You're all a bunch of morons. You all should be fired. In fact, you're fired now. <laughs> and this, Dude, I've been, and, I've been re-watching Quincy, is, too. Go on, continue. This is my first gig in television, right? Jesus, yeah. Oh, my God. I can only imagine the anxiety. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it prepared me for Roseanne later on, but that's another story. So anyway, you know, what was, before we, before we leave Buck Rogers, uh, no, I didn't, uh, didn't see Buster Crab. I will, right. I will tell you, I will, I promise it will be fast. I will tell one story though about, uh, Clayton Moore. I did not meet, um, but, uh, my wife was the publicist for a video company that was releasing Lone Ranger. Okay. And at the VSDA convention, if you know what that was back in the day. Uh, Tell us. Well, essentially an exposition for home video. Okay, and, okay. And when there were celebrities from titles coming out, uh, they would go to the convention, and the publicist, in this case for Rhino Home Video, uh, would accompany the star or the celebrity. Sure. And so my wife uh, basically was chauffeuring and ushering Clayton Moore around, getting him from the hotel to the convention. 
And he was a frail man in a wheelchair who could not walk, unaided, according to what she was told. Uh, There was a problem, either a problem or some sort of logistical thing where uh, she had to wheel him from the car some distance to the convention center. When they came within eyesight, eyeline of what looked like fans, and he spotted one that had a Lone Ranger t-shirt on, he said to my wife, stop the wheelchair. And she just stopped it. And he was, you know, he was dressed in the costume. Sure. And he put on the white hat, and he put on the mask, and he stood up without the cane. Wow. And he said, let's go. And she said, Mr. Moore, are you sure? They're not going to see me any other way. Wow. That was Clayton Moore. Wow, that's fantastic. I've heard that about Bob Hope in, in his 80s, that, you know, when he was off camera, he would kind of allow himself to be his age. But as soon as he knew he was going on, yeah, he'd straighten up right. and kind of, like, lose a couple of years well, that going, was, all right, I'm performing. That, that, that was also true of George Burns. Um, but uh, for someone like that, and he was really... He really was sincere. I mean, a lot of people in, in show business thought he was a little eccentric, caring about his fans that much. But Clayton Moore. Yeah. But um, as far as I'm concerned, from what I heard, I've heard, he was a, a dear, sweet man who, uh, you know, loved to Gave a give shit. a Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. And loved – and yeah, exactly. Loved being the Lone Ranger. And yeah, it's – no, that's the amazing thing is – well, yeah, he was. He was the man. Yeah. Well, it certainly did a lot more for him than Clinton Spilsbury or, <laughs> or Armand Hammer. Hammer. Yes. I... <laughs> Although I hear, I keep hearing it. I haven't watched it yet. That the guy Richie Man from Uncle with Cavill and Armie Hammer is actually a fun movie, and I will see it I'm, eventually. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it will. But, you know, when people say to me, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Star Wars because I know Disney will do such a good job with this established property. <laughs> to which my response is, have you seen John Carter? <laughs> have you seen two hours of Johnny Depp running around with a stuffed bird on his head? <laughs> yeah, that was – yeah, that Lone Ranger movie. Wolf. But, you know, and the funny thing is I was on a panel of the year that Lone Ranger bombed. And there were some very smug people, you know, nerd fans that are like, yeah, well, you know, try and revive a, a, a you know, a property that goes back to the 30s and, and good luck with it. And I'm like, really? You know, then uh, explain Antonio Banderas and the, and the Mask of Zorro, the first Zorro movie with Hopkins. I'm like, that's older than The Lone Ranger. And it was a great movie, no. I think. I think I, no. I, especially because they had Hopkins, I thought. It's the luck of the draw, although, you know, right. <laughs> the properties of George Trendle and Franz Stryker have not been faring very well because in addition to that Green Hornet. Uh, yeah, Green Hornet. You got the Green Hornet, the Seth, Ro- yeah. the Seth Rogen Green Hornet in, in addition to the Lone Ranger movie. So. No, you're right. You see, at a point, you, got your, you, did your, you did your radio throw down there with Trendle and, uh, and Stryker. Nice. I well, like it. Well, I mean, it's, well, for it, reasons I won't go into and can't go into, I've, I've been doing a lot of research into the fact that those continuities – were actually interlinked. It's probably yes, one earliest, probably one of the earliest examples of that in popular culture. Or her- absolutely, you know. Now comics, uh, I loved their Green Hornet comic book run of the early '90s, and they very subtly shoehorned the Lone Ranger into the Green Hornet uh, continuity as it was, and it was it was great. It was you know very subtle, but it was there. Hmm. 
Good stuff, man. All right. Well, uh, I'm sure they can be modernized. Yet. Go on. So Lindsay, Lindsay Falls, any anecdotes from working on the G.I. Joe cartoon stories or characters that never aired? No. Okay. <laughs> well, no. Now, the reason I can say that, you know, stories or characters is the way the show was done. I mean, quite frankly, we can say this today, many years later, because the current shows or whatever's currently being done with the character, uh, the characters. And, if, and by the way, I understand there's a whole new initiative now that Hasbro has just announced where they're, yes. they're going to interweave the continuities. Yes, of, of all their properties. Right. Yes, right. They're going to create a connected universe. Yeah, well, that, that'll be kind of interesting. But the way that show yes, was done, well. <laughs> uh, the way the original show was done, um, it was produced it was, uh, by Sunbow Productions, which was the production arm of the ad agency for Hasbro, Griffin and McCall. And it was very literally what the pressure groups were accusing it of being, which was 65 half-hour commercials. So we would get – they made blind commitments to the writers. The writers never had to pitch premises until after they had the assignment because there were non-disclosure agreements involved because they would give you a list of new figurines that were being introduced. Okay. New props, uh, toys, uh, uh, you right. know, weaponry and, and vehicles. Right, right. And you would get these lists and, you know, with, with the descriptions of what they were. And it was timed for the release of the toy to synchronize. I mean, it, it was synchronized with the production schedule so that it was due to air at roughly the same time as Hasbro was trying to introduce the toy. Sure, sure. Well, the point is no characters. No stories not used because you had to make those things work if you had to contort yourself into a pretzel. It was inviolate. So if the first thing, you know, so if the premise you came in with, um, I mean, Steve Gerber, who was the story editor, did a wonderful job of this. He would, he would see, okay, all right, all right, what have you got for, you know, I'm, 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 Snake I, eyes. I, thank you. Okay. <laughs> and I don't even I don't even know this shit. But all right, there's right. two names that I do know: Snake Eyes and Duke. Right, okay. Right. What have you got for these characters in in this sequence here? And I say, oh well, we can take and then you you would go back to the list, the checklist. Oh, we can put this one in here, and we can put that one in there, and they can do this. And go, oh, okay, fine. And and that was the way that show was done. And it was interesting. <laughs> Did you ever talk to Larry Hama? Because you know Larry created the backstory for a lot of those figures and stuff. I mean, that's, you know, it was a failed, uh, or I passed on a shield proposal that Larry came up with. And he basically took that. And went to, when Hasbro's like, we've got these GI Joe figures, we're bringing it back. Do you have an idea for backstory and, and characters for these things? And, you know, he's, he's considered the creator of GI Joe, the, the those GI, you know, that the eighties version of GI Joe. Um, that may very well be. Uh, all I remember is that Larry was an employee of Marvel, Productions, who were the animation subcontractors on the show. Okay. But I was an employee of Sunbow. Okay. So uh, uh, Joe Bacall and his his son, uh, Jay, were the de facto producers from our point of view. Um, And I basically dealt with a lot of the other uh, G.I. Joe writers who were friends of mine. I mean, basically, it was like old home week from Ruby Spears to some extent. Understood. A, a lot of other people as well, though, like Christy Marks and so on, uh, because there were just so many of them. But we were this little tiny 
close-knit community on the west side, and uh, Marvel was out in the valley. So the line producers, the storyboard artists, all of those guys were in the valley. And I think Larry, uh, being as much an artist as a writer, if I'm not mistaken, I could be, uh, was part of that team. But what exactly he was doing, I don't know. Okay. All right. Um, let's see here. Ah, Ron Salas, excellent artist, uh, asks, did you get any flack from Marvel when you wrote the X-Men parody issues in E-Man? How about that? There you go. Say, say, never, never discount the word balloon audience, Marty. You're going to get good questions from these people. No, I don't think so. But I think I ran into some trouble with Stan Lee a few years later after he'd hired me. I think somebody might have whispered in his ear that I was the guy who wrote Mr. Presents and Wimp, Wimp Limited. And which? Wimp, Wimp Limited. Yes. Wonderful, incredible, miraculous publications. Yeah. Uh, Wimp Limited. I, I'm prouder of that than just about anything I've written in humor. Um, Everybody was a good sport. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jim struggled hard, but he felt better about it when I explained to him. Um, I, I'm, I have no animos, animosity toward Jim at all. In fact, he's always been very, very good to me, so I want to be careful about this. Um, there was a, 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 a physical appearance issue that, that Jim was a little sensitive about, and he thought that one of the characters was making fun of that. And I pointed out, oh my God, no, 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 that wasn't my intention at all. And I, I pointed out to him that the character of Sniper, who was the editor whose head you never saw, and that, you know, and <laughs> Joe Staten got him immediately. You ripped that gag off of Police Squad, didn't you? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, Ed, there was a the guy, big giant Ed. The guy in the... And I hadn't seen the show, and I, and I said... No, and I watched it. And I said, "Okay, let's rip it off." <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, it was just it was just one panel or a couple of panels. But um, if Byrne was pissed off, I, I never, you know, uh, it's a cog, it's a wheel, it's company man. Uh, I never heard. <laughs> well, that was a, that was so, that was a very obscure thing because that was a reference to, to something that Byrne had taken a lot of flack for when Marvel was still treating him well before he came over to, to D.C., where he said, I'm a company man, and I'm proud to be a company man. And I, I, I took him to task in an essay that I wrote in, 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 in the comic scene or something. I remember comic scene, sure. And I, you know, basically I said, why would you want to be a company man? You know, they, <laughs> they have no loyalty to you. You're only as good as the last thing you Damn straight. And, and basically what, our, what I was essentially saying was arguments like yours make it harder for the rest of us uh, you know, to get what is appropriate. Because remember, this was before the royalty plans. Um, so he took umbrage about that and we went back and forth. But I always thought it was always very uh, civil and cordial and professional. Uh, I later discovered he sort of took it a little more personally. So I don't know how he how, – well he reacted to that I think the one who had the hardest time with it was uh, Chris Claremont who said something rather stiffly like well I I suppose it's sort of a legitimate attempt at humor (laughs) is what to me (laughs) 
whatever. But not from Marvel. But not from Marvel itself. So, I, but no, I would apologize all these years later if anybody's knows was out. I'm trying. But uh, understood. But then again, uh, to be honest, at least as far as I know, because I've never, I've never seen it, and nobody's brought it to my attention. I, I've never been the subject of that kind of of lampoonery, and you know, I, I would just hope that I would be the good sport about it. I mean, I'm, you know. I've been roasted in Mock Friars roast kind of thing a lot, a lot of times. But then you have zingers that you can get back to, back at them. Exactly. You get a chance not to just, speak to Exactly. You're not just on the receiving end. So. I hear you, Matt. That's awesome. I, you know, Matt Alley uh, says, I, would always, I always enjoy hearing Marty's thoughts on creators' rights and proper compensation and royalties, hoping this might be a topic. I would, and, and seriously, later, later this, you know, into 2016, <laughs> let's make time. Because, no, really, Marty, because honestly – I do think the market is in a really interesting point with creator-owned books. And, and it's funny, this is one of the main things in our your pre-conversation that you wanted to talk about, but we haven't gotten to it yet. But no, you know, honestly, like I always tell you, I'm happy to okay. – and it, that it ends up being whatever it ends up being because you've had this varied career – that it's great. I mean, God, we've never talked about your Roseanne stuff. We've oh, barely talked about your Simon and Simon stuff. Yeah, but if there's interesting shit there, we could talk about it at some point. And I knew eventually – it's so funny, Marty. We, we talked about, oh, you know, we really didn't talk about much about your Twilight Zone stuff. And I thought, oh, you know, you being at the panel might inspire some new stories. But you're like, yeah, that's pretty much what we did. So I'm like, OK, well, we'll move on. We can revisit it at another time. You know, I'm, glad you, you know. I'm glad you find all of this interesting. But my preference would be that the next time we talk, we're spending – more time on stuff I'm currently working on. Oh, absolutely. Well, that, and truly, well, truly, that is the other thing is, yes, you, I mean, yeah, we want new Marnie Pasco stuff and we want to talk about that and also hear about well, it's, 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 because, as much, yeah. as much as the philosophical stuff if you're interested in it. But, I mean, you know. Sure. You know, I'm kind, but of, like, kind, also, of, I'm kind of used to feeling like a guest on the Joe Franklin show. Remember Joe Franklin? Well, that's the thing. No, and I don't want you to feel that way because, honestly – I'm not. I'm not having you on for an old timer session. I really am like, I, I. And because honestly, this is the way that I talk with with Walt as well. When Walt comes on, you you guys have this great perspective of the way it was when you were starting out, but also it, you know apply what you know now and also what you see in the marketplace now, well, both from a writer's standpoint and as an observer. Well, where I and I think that, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's invaluable. And honestly, people, it's that thing about history. How do you know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? Well, where I hope I can be helpful is to uh, creators, creatives starting out um, in that some of these anecdotes, some of these stories, uh, there are implicit – I don't want to say lessons because that sounds pedantic, but uh, uh, cautionary tales, pearls of wisdom, cautionary tales. Yeah. And my job, if I'm going to be helpful at all, is expressing these things in terms that aren't about, oh, wasn't it great back then and the joy of that experience and all of that. Although, you know, some of these stories I I know are, are, are interesting to people. But to frame them in a way that, you know, this is relevant to what you're doing. And I think more – now that comics are more cinematic in most instances than than they've ever been um, and yet more literary in other ways, um, others, others. Um, And I'm talking, of course, about things like graphic novels that interpolate prose 
uh, with graphic storytelling. Sure. But because certainly mainstream comics are much more cinematic now than they've ever been, um, the lessons of studying screenwriting that can be applied to comics aren't necessarily abundantly clear. Um, particularly if the person who's starting out in comics wants to be a screenwriter because there's a gap between writing for comics, I think, and writing for the screen. There's also the same as the, the gap, so to speak, uh, between animation um, and writing for film, which is that okay. in, in those media, uh, uh, comics and animation, when writing for artists, you're expected to direct on paper. And then when you move from there, as I did, to live action, everything has to be terser and simpler and less intrusive on the director's prerogatives. Understood. And the difference between those three media often obscures the fact that you can learn things from doing one that are almost directly applicable to the other, but they aren't always abundantly clear. And so going forward, and maybe people listening to this might respond by, oh, that sounds like that might be something interesting that I'd like to hear about. That could be something we could talk about. But anyway, anyway, I, 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 I appreciate the fact that uh, you find this stuff interesting. Hey, man, I'm serious. No, and, that, and truly... I know that aspiring creators do come here for advice and writing advice and storytelling advice. So no, this is this is all great. Well, I've I've, and, I've, uh, I've heard great advice from some of your artist guests. I just haven't been listening enough to the writers, I guess. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate that you're that you're finding stuff from from you know the people that I have on. I think that's terrific. And yeah, I mean, all right. Well, let's because. Uh, there's the only other essay, the 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 other questions I believe are all essay questions. I'm checking to make sure <laughs> if there's anything else. Oh, do you do you want to say? And this is kind of a, a, a back then question. If it's not too late, can you talk about the genesis of DC Comics Presents and could team up books make it in the comics world today? That's Joseph uh, Jonathan Conrad asked that question. Well, uh, unless there's been a reboot of Brave and the Bold since Mark Wade's Mark. Wade's the person who can speak yeah. can speak more authoritatively about whether team up books work uh, or not. And my only insight into that is that I would imagine that they're a hell of a lot harder to do, and it goes back to something that, <laughs> forgive me, my failure of short term memory, but we did talk about this in this conversation, didn't we? Murray Boltonoff and his disregard for continuity. Yes, uh, yeah, and how much I loved it exactly. Let, don't let it get in the way of telling a good story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but you couldn't do it. You couldn't do a team up that way today and so I imagine for a writer it would be much more difficult because you're not only dealing with all the other writers of that character of the one character and the continuity that's going on um, but you're dealing with you know the same thing with the other character um, and I imagine it, it must be a logistical nightmare because you, you know you can't be having summit meetings every week uh, and a lot of the kinds of stories that were done in Brave and Bold wouldn't have been possible without that utter disregard for continuity. Um, in, in my case on, on DC Presents, since Julie was still editing The Flash and Superman at the time, uh, those first two issues were very, very easy to do. And the other things that, that we did, that I did with him, um, I relished the challenge of that tonal thing. He called me up, he said, Superman Plastic Man. And I said, okay. 
plastic man's in another universe. And then he started saying, well, what do you mean? You're going to use the cosmic treadmill and all that. No, 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 no. Just visually. And we gave it a name. Len had revived the old Warner Brothers gag of, uh, from the Roadrunner cartoons of Acme Everything in, yes. in the plastic man that we had done. So I said, okay, it's Acme City. And because, and because Joe uh, had the chops as both a cartoonist and a straight penciler, the way we set the story up is that you know, Superman would be flying over Metropolis and look normal, and then he's over Acme City. I was like, this is very strange. But we set it up so that you only saw the transition when Superman was flying so that we could back in the explanation if one of the fanboys wrote in the, in the letter column and said, well, what, what was that? It just, was he in another – oh, yes. Well, uh, Superman was flying at super speed and didn't realize he was in another parallel you – know, in a parallel universe or whatever. But we, So who – which show? Which show drew, no, no. This was, a, this was a DC Comics Presents uh, Superman and Plastic Man. Yeah, but who – which Joe drew it? Yes, right. Which Joe? Oh, I'm sorry. Joe Staten. Just, okay, I wasn't sure, but all right. Just I, I, forgive me. No, I assume because he, he, you know, I had done Plastic Man with him. Uh, you know, I, 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 I forgot okay. what you know and what you remember. What? No, I forgot because honestly, I remember Hillary's run more than I remember yours and Joe's run, frankly. But as for the question about uh, DC, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I understand that. I understand that. Uh, that was terrific stuff. That was really good. You're, you're talking about the book he did with Phil Folio? Yeah. For Mike, yeah. For Mike Gold? Yeah. Yes. That, yes. That, yeah. That, where, run. Yeah, that yeah. was where, where my admiration for Hillary began, um, and many other things that he's done. I really hope we can work together somewhere sometime. But anyway, boy, that would be great to. I, I would be thrilled if the two of you guys work together. I, I that would absolutely. True, God, if I had the money, I would make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I absolutely would make that happen because that would be. Great. Well, but maybe you know people, so maybe we can talk later. Now. Well, maybe people are listening, and maybe it's a good idea. There you go. You well, know. no, I mean the thing. I have a very specific project that I think he'd be perfect for. But oh, cool. He's well, he's nervous. He just says, you know, he's always nervous. God bless him. I love Hillary, well, but no, yes, no, no, that no, does. No, no, no. What I mean is, he's doing such a you know a heavy volume of work for Bongo, and he's really, really you know enjoying. Oh, sure. What he's doing that he's you know worried about you know meeting the deadlines and taking you know, and I'm like, would you at least read the proposal? <laughs> so. <laughs> Sniff this out. I'm not trying to hold him up to any kind of, you know, create any kind of pressure. But anyway, um, so but to get back to the question, there's no real story about the uh, the creation of DC Comics Presents, uh, except that you know, Brave and Bold was doing really well, and Jeanette, and, I think it was Jeanette. You know, I don't think we started it with Karma. It was Jeanette, and Jeanette and Paul basically said Superman should have one. Sure. How they came up with DC Comics Presents as opposed to something like, you know, instead of the brave and the bold and the, you know, the courageous. The strong and the stuffy. Yeah, that's right, right, right. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I have no insight into that. But, that, you know, it was, really, it was very simple. It was just we're starting this new book. Uh, would you like to write it? And I was supposed to be <laughs> I was supposed to be the regular writer of that. But <laughs> things got very, very complicated on the world's greatest superheroes, which was the syndicated strip I was writing. I remember we did talk about that in a yes. previous episode. Yes. And yes. Yeah, it's too bad, man, because you and Tuska, I mean, that's that's a cool combination as well. And impossible to do in a syndicated strip, but that's beside the point. So anyway, that's the end of the uh, DC Comics Presents question. So, well, and the, the, the only thing I'd add to that with that uh, when, when Jonathan asked if it would work today, the funny thing is, you're right, I mean, uh, Wade certainly had editorial problems with his version of The Brave and Bold. Meanwhile, they do the adaptation of the cartoon series with Diedrich Bader, uh, and 
you know, again, I, I don't know what kind of clout uh, if because I think those were written by Charlie Fish. I don't think it was the producers of Brave and Bold. Much as the Young Justice producers had a lot of influence of what came in their comic adaptation. But I mean, that's the thing. Like, no, it was old fashioned Batman, Brave and Bold, and it, yeah, it was the cartoon versions of Green Arrow and all these other heroes mm-hmm. that he would end up teaming up with. But you know, just like you guys uh, doing the animated series adaptation for comics and stuff. Yeah, it just seemed like, okay, you did your own thing. It was in that universe, and nobody really blinked and worried about, you know, whether whether this could work or not. They they found good stories, and they were entertaining stories. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, there are different ways of doing the alternative continuity, and it's – it's well, it's kind of interesting. Um, but it's the studios who are doing it, in a sense. Because once they figured out that the multiple iterations of the character that are represented by uh, the medium in which they're incarnated uh, can coexist, then it's, okay, let's just do it. So I guess what I'm really talking about is what started with the whole argument on Batman and the animated series about how, they, well, no, he, he, he can't be gray and blue. He has to be black because he's all black in the movie. And DC fought that for a while until someone in, I think, their licensing department pointed out that they could do multiple style guides and they could have a toy line that is completely separate from the Batman movie toy line because it's the Batman animated toy line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, of course... (laughs) (laughs) Millions of dollars later. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Ka-ching, ka-ching, and no more talk about how Batman has to be in black costume. (laughs) Sad but true. So now what do we have is we have... You know the DCU and the Marvel Universe, and they're all struggling to be cohesive and all bringing all the characters into that big tent. And meanwhile, the parent companies are going, "Okay, let's do a cartoon version of this. Let's do this on TV." And that's the and so many fans have it in their head. Now, I, I don't know that they're necessarily wrong because I don't know what kind of press releases have been issued on this subject. But uh, many fans I know are under the impression that the point of the whole re- reorganization. Um, reorganizations that have occurred at, at, at DC and Marvel are in response to a top-down management effort to bring all the con- content into alignment with each other. But I don't see that. You know, I don't, I don't see... We're not going to be seeing a black Jimmy Olsen in the comics, are we? Despite Supergirl. We're not going to be... Right. Right? Or a black Perry White, for that right. matter, well, that, in the film. That was the next example, yeah. And then yeah. there are also those... those you know, this, the corresponding examples, Nick Fury and so on from the Marvel set. True, true. Well, but although, again, uh, they have kind of retconned uh, a Nick Fury Jr. that is a, a son of uh, the original Nick Fury that is kind of taking the Samuel L. position in the Marvel Universe. And old Nick Fury has kind of been given his own fate. But uh, yeah. But the question I have, maybe you know the answer to this and I don't. Uh, why have the studios not been able to say I'm not saying that they should I would simply assume that they would want to say to the comic book companies no no you have to match this step you know but but as I understand it the continuities on the TV shows don't necessarily line up with the continuities in the movies although the forthcoming films 
may show that that's different. I mean, I- no, they are going to be. It is no, it is. They are separate worlds because I heard Andrew Kreisberg on okay. Kevin Smith's podcast even say, finally, Warner Brothers is like, nope, we're doing different versions for TV and different for the comics and different from. Uh, the films, and if there are elements that work, that can work in all three, we'll make it happen, but we're not beholden to that in any way, and that's good for the television shows, because the, you know, the concern was, will these things work without their two biggest stars, if not their three biggest stars, including Wonder Woman, and the answer is yes, because it, without those, without the existence, or at least the appearance of, um, specifically in the CW shows, Arrow and the Flash, without having Batman or Superman there, much like I imagine was the case in the all-American versus national comics days, you know, Green Lantern right. and Flash right. are their, were their big heroes in the comics. Green Arrow and Flash are their big heroes right. Right. in the television universe, and they get to be the leads and the stars of their of their stories. And that's something that I think the comic books figured out as well in the last few events, in that um, Blackest Night was a was a, D, a DC wide event but it was a green a green lantern story and it seems like the more events as they make them batman and superman are not the problem solvers they might be involved but the other heroes are the leads and that's great cuz now we've got a different perspective and a different character point of view as the lead character so that makes it a different story and an opportunity to tell a different story in the comics and again um in in TV and movies and and uh cartoons um yeah that's i i i think it's finally starting to happen on DC cuz they see what Marvel is doing mm-hmm. and Marvel's able to do it very effectively and the guy especially the new guy that's in charge of DC is like or in charge of Warner's is like, yeah, we should, you know, all right, let's use that example. Now, who is the new guy who's in charge of Warner? But... Uh, you know, it's a, a Kevin, and I forget oh, his oh, name, oh, Asian gentleman. Oh, all right. Well, that's that to me, that's not a new guy. Well, I guess because he's been on the job for two years or so, but we're just now starting to see yeah, Kevin Fujihara. Yes, and we're now seeing Fujihara's uh, influence in the in the product that's coming out now. What's going to be interesting in Marvel is, and I still haven't been able to get a straight answer. Um, you know, there was that rumor that Kevin Feige, in charge of Marvel Films, mm-hmm. has distanced himself from the comic book people, and uh, mostly in terms of, as rumored, kind of a pissing war with uh, Ike Perlmutter, the man in charge of Marvel, who kept saying no to a lot of big money ideas. He has this autonomy, you know, uh, autonomy now from Ike Perlmutter, and only has to report directly to Disney. And Alan Horn, as far as whatever movie ideas that he has. But as a consequence, unfortunately, now doesn't seem to have the influence of the Marvel Comics creative panel that I would argue, at least based on what we saw on screen, it just seemed like all of those things that came from the comics made just made the films better because there was this committee that could come in and advise and say, you know, this is what makes this character work. And and I heard just as many positive stories about filmmakers that welcomed the feedback of the Marvel Creative Committee, as well as what we're getting now in a few people that didn't appreciate their input. Um, and it's all anecdotal and it's all rumor, and we're not really sure how – with non-disclosure agreements, I can't get to the bottom of it and all. And we really won't see what these Marvel movies will look like without their influence until the Guardians of the Galaxy sequel comes out in 2017. Mm-hmm. Captain America will def- – Civil War will absolutely still have Marvel movie panel influence on it. And it will be interesting to see how the uh, the critics respond and say, well, I guess Kevin Feige knows what he's doing. Look how great Civil War was. Eh, don't – you know, not yet. Because, again, these movies were still being written 
with uh, with Marvel movie panel uh, people, you know, mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. input. So well, I don't know. Is, it's it's an interesting time. This is not you know really anything I know anything about. I I had not even heard these rumors about Feige. Um, I, I know a few people who work for Marvel Animation, but that's... That's okay. TV, and that's still with Marvel Comics. Right. So it's literally just the, the live-action movies that have now split off, because we were getting hints of the TV, the live-action TV shows. You know, Agent Carter showed up in, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in Age of Ultron, or rather even in Ant-Man. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, yeah, so you get little moments like that. I don't know how many of those will continue... Uh, it, when the Black Panther movie, whenever it gets made, but net, you know, animated series, Netflix series, ABC shows, those all seem to still, you know, will fall under Marvel's purview. And and I know Jeff Loeb, good friend and uh, mm-hmm. head of Marvel Television mm-hmm. stuff, welcomes the input of the comic creators that he has worked with in the past. And again, to great success. Have you seen Jessica Jones yet? No, I haven't. Any of, or any? Have did you see Daredevil? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What'd you think of Daredevil? Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> In a positive way or positives and negatives? I'm not sure yet. Not interesting. Sure. Well, wow. well I, okay. that, that's another character that you know was a great favorite of mine. I never wrote it in comics, but um, in did you and, and in um, prose? But yeah, you wrote you wrote the novel, didn't you? Uh, novels. It's a novella. It's a, a part of four. Uh, it was, it, it, uh, Mark Wade flattered me tremendously. I mean, you know, <laughs> very kind of him. Um, he did a did a thing on the ten Daredevil stories you ha- you must read. Um, that went you know viral. It was about a, a, over a year ago, uh-huh. um, and he mentioned that story as one of those 10 stories that uh, now what it, it, tell people what it's in Marty. oh gee it's oh, it's, okay. well, well, it's, the, it's uh, marvel superheroes it's, it's a pocketbooks thing i i don't think it's still in print uh but was this back in the 70s what, yeah, uh, late, you know. late 70s it's edited by len Wein and marv wolfman and i had to do it under pseudonym um uh, originally i was you know i had that delusion that uh, i was going to sell a lot of prose and at that time, Steve Englehart was shopping around a novel and was encountering some of the mo- most ridiculous uh, prejudices among agents and publishers and editors. Um, we don't want to read this. We know it's superficial. Well, what do you mean? Well, we know comics. You're a comic book writer. We don't even read this. And listening to Steve talk about that spooked me so badly that I said, Len Marv, I'd love to do this, but I want to do it under pseudonym. And they didn't like that very much. And then they kept twisting my arm. And then finally I decided when I – when it started to come come together, I said, I'm actually kind of proud of this. And a, a couple of seasoned prose writers that I really respected read the manuscript and said, this is good. This is good. You, this is your first attempt at something this length. And I said, yes, this is, you know what you're doing. And I said, okay, I'll take your word for it. I, I didn't believe it, but, you know. And I went back, cool. I went back to Lennon Marv and I said, publish it under, let, let's publish it under my own name. Well, by that time, Stan Lee or someone up the food chain had decided that because all of the other writers of the book were associated with Marvel Comics, I would be the only writer who was associated with DC. So if they if he put a, a pseudonym on it, let us leave the pseudonym on it, oh. which is Kyle Christopher. And it was Kyle Christopher, I, right? I'm looking it up. And it was this huge secret for the longest time until somebody talked to somebody, Leonard Marv or something, and they you no, know, they were asking, well, who is 
Kyle Gustav, and they said it's Marty Basco. And, uh, <laughs> and what what Mark was re- responding to was the exercise uh, that I set for the goal that I set for myself, which was to tell the story entirely from Matt Murdock's point of view. Which meant I never described him seeing anything. It was all about how he experienced the world through his other senses. Wow. And there were a lot of mundane things like how does he get dressed in the morning? He can sense the colors of the tie. How does he know his clothes match? How does he, how does he do this? How does he do that? And presenting it as a routine um, you know, with, with lines like he stood in his darkness and let the sunlight warm him. You know, things, uh, descriptions of the senses and of, of the heightened senses. And it was, it was such an interesting experience writing it because I, it, there were, have been few times that I've been inside the head of a fictional character that way. Uh, I mean, certainly a superhero character. And so the characters always had a, a you know, I've always had a soft spot for it. And, and of course, because he was blind, we could never get the animated series off the ground. And back in the eighties, uh, but I, I read the Sterling Sullivan screenplay for the attempt at Daredevil that uh, Warner Brothers did in the early 80s. Or maybe it was a script left over from the late 70s. I don't remember. I, I know what you're talking about. Go on. But the thing about that character is that I don't – I haven't yet seen – and this is something that is kind of de-emphasized in the Netflix stuff. I have not yet seen an interesting pictorial representation, and they only exist in – descriptions were in the Ben Affleck film uh, of this of the powers that really convey a sense of what it's like to live that way I mean my first thought would be how about shooting the entire thing in subjective camera that might get very very difficult to follow but it would sure you know, and it might be a you know end up looking like a vicarious drug experience <laughs> yeah, I understand what you mean. Go on. <laughs> but with 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 Steadicam and CGI and all the other tools that we have at our disposal, we can do subjective camera cinema in a way today that was simply not possible um, in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, by way of example, uh, if you're into film noir, you might know Lady in the Lake. I was thinking that yes, the uh, Robert Montgomery uh, right. And Philip Marlowe that's done from his perspective. You never see him except in the mirrors and so on and so forth. Yep. That and uh, I think it's Dead Reckoning. There's a, it, it's a Humphrey Bogart, uh, Lauren McCall picture mm-hmm. directed by Dimmer Daves. And where, where the conceit in that is that uh, he's got one face when he escapes prison and then he gets plastic surgery and turns into Humphrey Bogart. So the way Delmer Daves, the director, shoots it is for the first 20 minutes, it's purely subjective camera. Uh, following the prison break and the, the character getting to the plastic surgeon. Wonderfully, wonderful ideas, but the technology simply couldn't execute them because you couldn't get that sense of the, the way the eyes, your eyes bob up and down as you're walking, but you're, you're not aware of that because the gyroscope in your head sort of compensates for it, but you do have this subliminal sense of movement in your vision as you're walking. Well, you can only do that with handheld or steady cam or whatever, you know, where you're deliberately, you know, shaking it, but it's steady otherwise. Um, you just couldn't do it from laying dolly track. 
and the cameras were still cumbersome. So we have all kinds of means at our disposal now to do the subjective camera stuff. And what little I, – I don't actually – I haven't watched the entire first season. I don't recall an awful lot of it. Is there? Or am I of Daredevil? Yeah, or am I just not paying? It? It's just the one season right now. They're making. They're no, making no, 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 no. Two I now. mean, are there a lot of the subjective camera point, points of view shots? I don't remember oh, seeing a lot of them. I don't think so. No, and I and I think there was that. Um, as you were saying, uh, in the Affleck movie, you get a little bit of that, like almost radar kind of darkness. Mm-hmm. With a with a slight outline, yeah, I don't remember seeing that kind of point of view in the Netflix series either. So my question, I'm not. Certain. My question would be then: Why is one of the unique selling propositions of the character that makes it different from other superheroes hasn't been exploited yet? Yeah, yeah that would be well then, true because think of the way that they solved the Iron Man, and also you've got Robert Downey Jr. You want to show his face? How do you do that in Iron Man while he's still under the helmet? And that under the helmet point of view that you get with those digital readouts of you know everything that he's seeing, and I think it was probably inspired by the uh, Adi Granoff uh, Warren Ellis uh, run of the car- of the comic book as well. Mm-hmm. But that was genius. I mean, that's the thing, and it's a perspective of Iron Man that you know you wouldn't expect, and it was it's well, fantastic. See, but um, you know, forgive me, I have to admit I haven't seen the Iron Man films. Um, the how do you see Robert Downey Jr. more frequently? When his when he's in the in the suit, uh, I mean, it's basically you're inside the helmet with him. Right. It's a close up of his face. Oh. There are uh, there's like a I'm trying to think of how to explain it. Kind of an animation that would represent almost like a um, a Google Glasses sort of readout oh, of information oh, 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 oh. that is over his face. I see. So so in, in, in essence, you're looking in two directions at once, and they're and they're having a yes. Race. You're right. seeing the screen. Yeah, you're seeing the screen as it reads out right. in front right. of Downey's face. I get it. I get it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's great. It's smart. And uh, yeah, and it's in the Avengers movies as well. And it will be in uh, this Captain America Civil War. Um, have you seen that trailer yet? No, but I did like the first Captain America up until the point when the Red Skull makeup was running around. That was what I, just, I <laughs> That's when I just you, dropped out of it. I, no, no, no. Have you not seen Winter Soldier? No. Oh, dude, you'll you'll love Winter Soldier when you see it because oh yeah, because it really they married the Engelhart sort of uh, the Shield kind of spy stuff of the seventies, uh-huh. and also what a great idea to have Robert Redford in the film mm-hmm. as and it really is this kind of like you can almost imagine some of his characters that's maybe not the character from Three Days of the Condor. I I, uh, who, I have to admit I was you know a little astonished to read that. Robert. The Redford wanted to do it. Yes, yes. You know it works, and just and Michael Douglas works in Ant Man. That is the great thing about these Marvel movies. Well, I mean, they it, manage it, to write dignified roles for these good actors, and they're not slumming it. it they're really not slumming. Well, it. it makes perfect sense in terms of a good career move, but you, you know, I'll tell you, man, Redford I'm, is he's amazing in Captain America, giving well, nothing away. Well, well, it's that, really strong. The, the but is that it seems like such an odd choice considering, you know, how infrequently he's worked lately. And when he has worked, it's been on projects completely on his own terms. Oh, yeah. Passion projects. Oh, my God. That uh, all is lost was just amazing. Well, for him to then to go, you know, completely 180 degrees in the other direction. 
True. And and be a hired gun was just was a little surprising to me. But but that's like Emilio Estevez in the '90s with those Mighty Ducks movies. He'd make those shitty Mighty Ducks movies, and or Depp does the same thing. <laughs> Depp makes the stupid pirate movies so he can make his interesting movies. Well, and well, stuff. The, 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 and, you know. I'm laughing, John. I mean, I think we can agree that Emilio Estevez at the time of the uh, Ducks right. movies was not a, sta- a star of the stature of Robert. Ray. All right, I got a better one. I got a better one. That Connery came back to James Bond for Diamonds Are Forever so he could do the offense, the Lamette movie, that that crime, oh, that, that cop that, crime movie. Uh, yeah, that was supposedly that was the deal that he went to you know um, United Artists and they're like, oh, you want me back for Bond? Fine, I'm getting this much money right. and you're letting me make a movie that I really want to make, and it was right. the offense with Sidney Lamette. Yeah, that's right because he made one more Bond after Lazenby, right? He's right, Diamonds Are whatever. Forever. Yeah, Dave, Diamonds Are well, Forever. Well, 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 I, well, I thought you were going to be uh, referring to Never Say Never again. No, that was just his fuck you to... That was later. Cubby broccoli. Cubby broccoli. Yeah, right. <laughs> Someone else is making a bond? <laughs> fuck you, Cubby. I'm in. <laughs> All right, great. Where do I start? I love Connor. I just think he's a terrific actor. Oh, I do too, man. I Do too. Do you like Craig as Bond? Uh, no interest. I... Well, it depends upon what kind of bond you want. I mean, if you want something that has something with more of an Ian Fleming feel to it, then he's the right guy for the job. Um, my favorite is Timothy Dalton, actually. Uh, I, I, I like his portrayals. I think he unfortunately was at a time when they were cutting the budget for every movie. Yes. And, yeah. and, and John Glenn is a great second unit director, but maybe not a great director. But uh, Daniel Craig is definitely an excellent actor. And um, I just, you know, hope that he's able to broaden his career the way Connery was. I mean, you know, because you look, you know, for all that pissing and moaning that that Connery did about being typecast as James Bond, he sure did have an awful lot of really good opportunities concurrently with it. Yes, and Artie being one of them, absolutely, man. Uh, so I'm, I'm just hoping the same thing happens for Craig. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. I well, I take it then you didn't see Spectre last month. Yet. No. All right. No. Um, and I understand. And you know, don't you think too? As Dalton got older, it's like, oh, I wish he were Bond now, because I really think he would have been an excellent forty-year-old James Bond or fifty-year-old James Bond. Well, you know, I I rarely go to. I mean, I wait, wait for them on DVD or on cable or whatever, um, because frankly, I was spoiled by the Writers Guild screenings, you know, Writer, Writers Guild Film Society, where we would all sit there respectfully. Nobody would stand up until the credit crawl was over, you know. Sure. And are you still are you still a member? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact. Okay. So do you do you well, get actually, your screens? Actually, I get um, no. Cause I've just been grandfathered back into it. Uh, oh, good. The, the animation, I have to a shout out here, the, the Writers Guild Animation Caucus, they, they've made, they're, they're incremental and they're slow, but they've made some tremendous strides. I did a, an animation script just a few months ago uh, for a Canadian company that was signatory, because they do this in animation, not in this country, signatory to the Writers Guild of Canada, right? Okay. But due to a reciprocity agreement, the aspect of which the, that the Writers Guild uh, agrees to was a function of the lobbying uh, of the animation caucus, as I understand it. Um, my work qualifies me for to be reinstated as a full, a full 
a guild member. I had been an emeritus member, and now I'm a member of the guild again. So, fantastic pro- progress in that area. But no, I don't get I don't get the screeners. But I'm I'm looking forward to the next year and at the end of next year. Uh, it did. I do have some friends who would get screeners and you know invite people over for sure, years, but, sure, uh, but not this year. Uh, last year at this time, though, I was. Uh, you know, totally blown away uh, by uh, the theory of everything and the, sure. you know, uh, American hustle. Compu- uh, 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 Maybe that was too. No, no, the the, the, the the British computer inventor, the the, the Cumberbatch picture. Oh yes, um, yeah, the Enigma story. Right, 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 right. I'm, you know, it's just, it's late here. I'm a little sleepy. I'm blanking. No, I know, man. I'm keeping you up. I'm an no, asshole. No, no, all right, no, I- not at all. <laughs> It's later there than it is here. That's fine. I'm enjoying myself. Well, we're both enjoying ourselves. That's good. All right. Yeah. Hilarious. uh, Anyway. All right. Well, we can wrap it. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, you know, if if you've got something else you want to ask, go ahead or whatever, you know. Well, let me see what, I mean, because I don't want to, I don't want to hit you with anything, you know, we're pushing, we're pushing four hours. What's an essay question? I turn everything into an essay answer. Yeah. Well, I understand. Well, well, some people wanted to get into um, having seen his name as a lead writer on Batman the Animated Series first season. I'm interested in how that very coherent vision of what has become the definitive DCU, even so much that has supplanted most of the Bronze Age and Silver Age classism for the mass uh, of people crystallized. After all, it was probably in pre-production around the era of the first Burton Batman film. A time in the industry that is much different from today. I'm interested with Marty bringing his years as a Bronze Age writing staple to bear his and his insights on that first year, or more and more or less on the uh, Bruce Tim Paul Dini DC animated universe. I obviously have a lot of affection for it, but Pasco is a great sounding board for it. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what the Bronze Age perspective thing has to do. You know, I'm, I'm trying to well, let's see. Together. Basically, he wanted to know about um, your experience writing Batman during the Bronze Age, bringing it to okay. the Tim Dini animated right, universe, okay, okay. Right. and your insights on that first year. Well, it was kind of unusual for me um, in the sense that uh, I I'd never never really handled the character a great, a great deal in solo stories. Uh, I wrote only a handful, if that many, whatever a handful is. Uh, most of my dealings with the character were in uh, Brave and Bold and in Justice League. Uh, okay. Um, but, I, you know, I hate to do this with a respectful question, but I, I, I feel the need to correct some rewriting of history. All right? Um, because, I mean, I've kept silent about this for a long time, um, but fans have sort of run with a ball and impression of how that series actually got started that is them working backwards from the later process. Um, and one of the things that frequently gets lost um, in the inadvertent rewriting of the history is credit where credit is due to the person who is the visual, in my opinion, co-creator of that series, Eric Radomski. Um, and so when I hear people talking about the Tim Dini. DC animated universe. It's important to remember that at that point there was no Bruce Tim Paul Dini animated universe. There were these a couple of kids, Bruce Tim and Eric Adamski, beginning animators, who had gotten word. Were at Warner Animation, got word, as I understand it, that the, ser- the studio was thinking about a Batman series, and then pitched 
their visual take on it. And Eric's contribution was as much I mean, visually. I mean, he was a producer, and he, he you know, the the directors uh, worked very closely with Bruce and Eric, and Bruce supervised things like layout and then campaign and so on. Um, Eric did better. Um, mm-hmm. What Eric came up with was the idea of painting the backgrounds on black vellum as opposed to white. So all of that, so instead of spotting blacks, the blacks were the negative space. You following me? I am. That contributed. That and the dark deco design contributed as much to the look of the series as Bruce's brilliant models. But they'd never run a show before. And the scripts were just not there. DC wasn't approving them. Fox wasn't approving them. And they brought in Alan Burnett. And around the same time, uh, in fact, I I was Alan's first hire about a a week after he got there. Uh, Serendipitously, the Fox uh, supervisor, you know, the the production, the production liaison with with the Fox network uh, was an old buddy of mine. He had moved over from production side and I had worked with him at a couple of other animation studios and of course you know Danny O'Neill would vouch for me because he was the guy who was reading the scripts for DC so um, after Sidney I wonder the guy from Fox recommended me to Alan Alan and I met uh, we spent a week working on a, an episode that I would do as a writer for a Mad Hatter show and Bruce decided he didn't want to do that but Alan hired me anyway, so I came aboard as the story editor. And essentially what we did was say, okay, certain number of episodes are already in production and we're stuck with them. But let's look at this in a completely different way. Because the disconnect had been that even though they had planned to do it as a what was called a tween show, to be stripped in the afternoon for mm-hmm. what we would now refer to laughingly as the 420 crowd, shall we say, um, <laughs> you mean literally like the marijuana four twenty crowd? Well, I mean, well, 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 ever since the Teletubbies, I mean, who, who, who did kids weren't walking at the Teletubbies? That was, you know, <laughs> that's that true. A- and I suppose I was the proper age for the four twenty generation, so I was one of those adult fans. Okay. But there was that tweener audience as oh, well sure. in, at four o'clock on Sunday, oh, sure. on, on weekday afternoons. Oh, Go sure, on. Sure. But the problem was that there there had been this disconnect. <laughs> But there was this disconnect between the sales force and the people producing the show because we were doing this this show that was designed to appeal to uh, high school students and college students, and they're running you know ads for dolls that wet themselves. You know? Right, right. And, and we're like, you know, what the fuck, right? And once they finally <laughs> figured once, but once everybody got on the same page, which was you know they were sort of moving in that direction when I came aboard. Um, we, we said, all right, let's roll up our sleeves. And they let me bring in uh, Marv Wolfman uh, on my first show. And we did a two-parter. And we uh, paired uh, – not paired him up, but um, Michael Reeves I brought in, um, an old buddy of mine from animation who later went on to be the co-developer with Frank Parr of Gargoyles for Disney and, and, many, cool. and many other things. But I brought in Michael as a writer. And we just over, over a couple of hours on 
over breakfast at the end of the first week I was there, we broke the first Clayface story. And then I, I wrote the outline, got it approved. And by the, like the following Tuesday or Wednesday, I had a, a draft of one. And then by the end of the following week, I had a draft of the other. And we did stuff like that a couple of times um, and got the show back on schedule. And that's how I got my deal at Warner Brothers. And then we needed another story editor uh, because, you know, a 65 show order and they had a box of scripts that they wanted to write off. Okay. And so then I brought in Michael Reeves and things proceeded that way for a while. And it was only then after he was done with uh, uh, an animated show, he was trying to get off the ground with, uh, I mean, it did make it to the, I, I believe it actually made it to air family dog with uh, Tim Burton, which is what Paul Dini was working on at that time, as, okay. as well as Animaniacs. And then Paul was added as the, the third story editor. The show really moved away from what it was at that time in the second season, which by that point it was the new adventures of Batman and Robin. But that, was, that was the extension of the original 65 show order. Uh, and from my perspective... A lot of what has been done since is sort of mixed together with the stuff that we were doing on that first season of Batman the Animated Series. But the reason, the reason that a lot of people felt they knew Batman if they were exposed to that show for the first time, um, when they compared it to the other stuff that they discovered in the comics subsequently, is that. Alan and I decided we didn't need to be bound by any particular point in Batman's continuity. Apparently that had been a big point of contention. It was one of those things that everybody had to work out before I showed up. And so we decided, all right, we'll cherry pick what we think is the most workable from all points in the continuity and essentially create our own our mm-hmm. version of Batman continuity. And we went back to New York and spent the day with uh, Denny O'Neill and his really terrific writer of an assistant at that time, Kelly Puckett. I think it was, you know, I, Kelly, I think, gave up on the uh, comic book industry somewhere along the way, but man, was he a good writer. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and Kelly, was, uh, Kelly and, and Denny were terrific. Um, and we spent the day going through the, the library and came back with a whole bunch of ideas. Um, Alan spent some time talking to Denny and went back to, to L.A. and wrote the, uh, the Two-Face show, uh, which Denny complimented him as being the best interpretation of Two-Face that he knew of, other than the... Yeah. Yeah, man. No, it's amazing. Great two-parter. And Fox was, you know, Fox was approving the scripts. And so we, you know, we, we, we kind of got the show on track. And then, and then Bruce, I mean, uh, Paul joined us and delivered that knockout script, uh, the, the Mr. Freeze show, Heart of Ice. Mm-hmm. And which was the basis on which the show uh, won its Emmy. I mean, they screened a number of episodes, but the first one that, that they uh, submitted to the Academy was Heart of Ice. So Paul's, you know, Paul, I, I, I don't mean to, to slight Paul's contribution, but what he was, he was coming in on a show that was already pretty much up and running, but, had, but hadn't been before. And I think that to whatever I had something to to whatever extent I had something to do with that, it was just simply, you know, by being so deeply familiar with the continuity, I was able to navigate um, Alan in certain directions because he was, I mean, he was familiar with the character, but his 
basic frame of reference was Super Friends, which he had done at Hanna-Barbera. Oh, crazy. Okay. So he had to sort of like rethink his impression of Batman. And one of the things that they didn't know about, and I, I thought for sure they, they would have on their shelves, was that old Mike Fleischer Batman encyclopedia that was updated and recently by Bob Greenberger into that huge thing. You know what I'm talking about? I do, absolutely. I have the original copy, and I have your updated uh, Superman oh, yes, the, the, uh, encyclopedia. Bob and I did, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but they had never heard of that, and it was out of print. So, you know, quickly made a couple of phone calls to people in New York, and they sent us, they sent us a box of these things, and we passed them around. Awesome. And that's what opened it up. So that is why it's, it's got fidelity to the comics, but it doesn't really because it's, you know... you. One version of the, a version of one of the villains, for example, will be itself a cherry picking from you know various things that have been done with the character, right? Um, and and with Batman, as you know, pre-crisis, post-crisis didn't really matter. So you know we would have the Penguin, which had at that point fallen into disfavor in the comics, appearing at the same time as a character like Bane. Right, right. I said F- or Killer Croc. What? Or Killer Croc. Oh, 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 right. Yeah, well, that was, that was, that was Michael Reeves. I had completely forgotten about that character. Um, and there was also a lot of stuff, too, that had been introduced in the 80s, uh, in that period around the same time as the crisis when Gene Colan was drawing it and Alfred, Alfredo Alcala was drawing it. Was in- yes, and I, great stuff. Uh, Len was editing it, and uh, Doug Mensch followed, I think, Jerry Conway on it or vice versa. Right. Yeah. Well, that was the period because I, I was heavily involved in animation, didn't really know that much of the continuity that Michael did. So he came in and he was able to remind us of, of things. And, and, and then we started to look at the material and there was some stuff that we didn't think would work like Nocturna. Okay. You know, because, well, see, that was the other, that was another one of those arguments, which is how far into the realm of flat out fantasy do you want to go? You know, and we could never quite figure that out because so many of the villains did have a basis in fantasy, but the show was essentially reality based. Right. So, yeah, it was street level, a street level show, definitely. Right. Yeah. Right. And Doug, in particular, was always uh, Mensch. Doug Mensch, in particular, was always fond of doing what subsequent writers do without thinking about it, which is introduce fantasy elements. I mean, having Batman encounter vampires. Which seems like, considering that he's Batman, a logical idea, you know, a no-brainer. Sure. But it's sure. Kind, it's kind of interesting because for what was it from 1939? Well, uh, almost 50 years, Batman getting involved with vampires was the quintessential example of what a Batman story shouldn't be. It was it was the one Batman story that Gardner Fox wrote. In the first two or three years. Right, because I was going to say there was a Golden Age vampire story. Go on. That's it. And that was, well, <laughs> Bill. One story. As far as I know. Um, until, that, well, until that period, of course, that notorious period that we, we want to forget, which was the only period we agreed would not be covered in the series, uh, which is when Jack Schiff went sci-fi on us. Right, in the late 50s yes. through the, the pre-Carmine Infantino. Right, right, right. All the aliens with the bowling Bowling pin heads and the starfish right. hands. Yeah, yeah. Well, and wasn't Denny as well as a Batman editor kind of like, hey, Batman does not belong in space. 
period. Like he was a very uh, – it sounded like uh, when some of the events would happen in the late uh, 90s and early 2000s, he was like, uh, Batman is not a space character. Denny, Denny <laughs> believed – Denny believed and I think you know rightly um, that Batman was tonally so specific that he for all intents and purposes inhabited his own world. Denny was never comfortable with world's finest. He was never comfortable with Batman's appearance in Justice League once he became the Batman group editor. Uh-huh. Um, and I can't say I disagree with him. Um, I think many creatives f- felt that Batman and Superman were so tonally different that they didn't belong in the same, in the same you know, universe. Uh, or, I'm sorry, in the same story. Understood. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, of course, Byrne addressed that in the way he had those characters interact after the crisis. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But he didn't have to object to anything like that from the animated scripts once the team that knew what Batman was had been assembled. So it, it, it didn't really come up. In other words, he didn't have okay. to. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I, I did ask for uh, from him was uh, an essay on what the essence of Batman was that he had written for one of his From the Den editorial columns. And that was, that was very instructive. And we took as much from the internal logic, the thinking about you know, you know, how the costume operated and various little details as, as, as well as well, we didn't really need the stuff about the psychology of the character because I think I think we understood. Sure, sure. But he gave us a lot of stuff that we would cherry pick as we could use it in animation. Um, so he he and his people were very very comfortable, and very soon it was essentially Scott Peterson, uh, his assistant who assistant editor rather who was editing the Batman animated series, who did most of the editing of the scripts. But after Paul after Paul came aboard. And we hit. We really hit our stride. Uh, we very, we very rarely heard from DC. You know, and their only complaints were things that were uh, business related, that were far above our heads, and were dealt with between top level management at DC and Warner Brothers Animation. And we would never even hear about those things unless they materially impacted the production of the show. Um, so that was it was relatively pleasant. But being a Bronze Age writer really wasn't as helpful or really didn't have as much impact on my you know, perspective of the, on the show and what I was able to contribute to it as much as just knowing the history of the character, mm-hmm. you know, from having, you know, having been uh, Julie's assistant on the Batman titles, having read it as a kid. And of course, you know, I was a kid when the whole 1966 thing happened. So that was... That was a time when anything Batman was rushed into print in you know, paperback collections of stories that weren't reprinted recently in the comics, all kinds of things that opened up to kids who wouldn't have had access to it otherwise, um, the history of the character. I, mean, I remember I discovered Dick Sprang for the first time in a paperback of black and white reprints with Adam West on the cover. Understood. Um, 
and then you know so in a similar fashion the bonanza published uh batman from the 30s to the 70s and superman from the 30s to the oh, 70s yes those yes uh, that that was my introduction to uh, i believe dick sprang because i don't think i started getting the 80 page giants right away right. Well, see, or the 100 page right. spectaculars people don't realize that in 19 I guess it would be 65, I think it was, the year before Batman. Nobody had ever seen anything from the Golden Age before, I think it was 65, actually, uh, Jules Pfeiffer published the, the great comic book heroes. You know, and... If, yes. Because the ability to reproduce the art with any fidelity, fidelity whatsoever, and if you look, in fact, at the... Uh, uh, Pfeiffer book, you, you will see that the stuff isn't reproduced very well. The ability to reproduce old comic book art without the, the, the negatives just simply didn't exist. That, that process called black plate reconstruction was essentially invented by Jack Adler in about 1965. And now we have such a robust library of reprints, people don't realize that that just didn't exist um, You know, when people of my age were coming up in the business. Um, you in the past mentioned, if I may, real fast, a, a, an earlier comics collection that you've always looked for uh, that was pre Pfeiffer. It was called the Comics or something like that. No, no, no. And was that more comic strip stuff? No, no, that wasn't Pfeiffer. No, right. I know, and that's what I'm saying. Okay. It was pre Pfeiffer. So, what was that called? 1947. Again? It was a book called The Comics, just very simply, uh, by an author named Colton Waugh. C is in Charles O U L T O N. Uh, Wall, like uh, the British author Evelyn Wall, W-A-U-G-H. Got it. And what was fascinating about it for me was that it wasn't just about comic books. It's about comic books, and it's actually it's primarily about comic strips. Okay. Hmm. But that was the first place where I said, wow, that, that Steve Canyon stuff I had not seen before because Steve Canyon was not at that time running in my local paper. Okay. Um, and in fact, the rendering by that point was similar, but not quite the same as the exquisite stuff that Kniff was doing in those first couple of years when he was doing most of it himself. And that was the first place that I realized because within the same, the pages of the same book, not on opposite pages, but within the pages of the same book, you had artwork from the late forties by people like Carmine Infantino and, and Alex Toth. And later in the book, you're seeing Milton Kniff from the same period. And that was the first time I said, Oh, wow. Comic book artists, because you know, I'm a kid, right? Comic book sure. artists are influenced by comic strip artists. And it, sure. it was also a great thing for comics literacy, too, because he went into single-panel gag cartoons. He talked about Crockett Johnson and PM Magazine and all of this kind of stuff that the Comics Journal would be introducing to people, uh, you know, uh, 30, 40 years later. Understood. Is touched on this book. So it, I believe it's long out of print. But it's a, it's a fascinating historical document um, because what was notable about it, and it, among many other things, was that it was the first book in that climate to treat comics non-judgmentally and as being worthy of uh, analysis from an, a pop cultural aesthetic. Whereas at the same time, you have Frederick Wortham 
you know, making him making him himself a star as a, a, a witness for the, uh, the the Kefauver hearings before, as a, or, or I'm sorry, uh, it was a seminar on um, the, this psychological origins of juvenile delinquency, some sort of very well publicized New York symposium, and that was the launching pad for him to seduction of the innocent. Crazy. So around the same time, you have this book talking about comics as. You know, being as bad for our kids as communists, <laughs> communist infiltration, appearing more or less contemporaneously with, with Colton Waugh's book. Interesting. No, I, I and that's why I wanted you to bring it up again, because if you can find yeah, it anywhere, may, let me know. You know? I hear you, man. Have you heard those WNEW transcripts, uh, recorded audio transcripts of uh, the the Senate hearings on juvenile de- delinquency in comics? No, I've just actually all I've seen is the famous clip of I think it's clip rather a clip a video clip rather than audio um, of uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates. Yes, yes. Falling apart. Yeah. Well, the, the famous line that completely doomed him was, uh, "We don't mind doing severed heads as long as they're in good taste." <laughs> And, and, and meanwhile, everybody, everybody in the comic book industry is sitting at home watching this banging their heads against, you know, <laughs> against, against the coffee table. Well, you know, but you see, the, it, 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 he was considered family at DC Comics, uh, you know, because Charlie Gaines' father, you know, was the guy who founded the, the American line. All American, right. exactly. American. Yeah, the one which was which was Green Lantern, Flash, right, exactly. Wonder Woman, right. and, one. and and you know. Then he went off to do educational comics, picture stories from the Bible. And what does his son do? Turns him into EC comics with dripping heads and <laughs> crypt of uh, vault of terror, crypt of horror, vault of horror, crypt of terror, whatever you know. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, I love great it. artist, yeah, man. No, 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 no. So, I'm not dissing it, man. I'm, I'm I, hip. No, I get it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Woody and uh, and and, and El- Johnny Craig and uh, uh, Will Elder and yeah yeah of course it's oh. great stuff and the writing isn't half bad too it's just that you know people didn't realize that how far Al Feldstein's tongue was in his cheek you know what I mean <laughs> uh, I got to meet Al before he passed away very cool guy man really if he and forgive me if he didn't pass away but I think he has in the last couple of years I think I've heard that um, but yeah he came to Chicago and. Was very would not speak on the record, right? But happy, but happy to talk off the record about you know everything, and it was just interesting as hell. And yeah, my God, I mean, walking history. Well, well, Gaines had this reputation for being you know quite an eccentric, and as I understand, everybody's reaction to him was like you know when he was doing the EC stuff before Mad, um, you know, oh my God, he's going to bring down the you know this is Charlie's boy. How is he? Or, how do they don't know? How does he not know? He's going to bring the wrath of God down us. Why is he publishing these things? And it, and that was kind of ironic because actually the start of horror comics was from the American Comics Group, not not the All American Line, the American Comics Group. Do you know who they are or were? I do. Go on. Okay. Let the people know. Yeah, please. All right. And <laughs> their publisher, Ben. Sato, I think I, I've forgotten his name. I'd have to look it up. Was an old uh, old buddy of Harry Donenfeld's. Harry Donenfeld gave him the startup money 
to go into the comic book business. And his first wow. and his first title was um, I think Adventure into Mystery, Journey into Mystery. It, it, it was their long running uh, long running horror uh, anthology. anthology title. And okay. in the late 50s, just before he went over to D.C., uh, Kurt Schaffenberger was their primary cover artist. He had done most of their stuff. Oh, no uh, kidding. Wow. A lot of their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were they were pretty big toward the late 50s and early, into the 60s. And then they, mm-hmm. they just folded. Uh, the, the cult fan favorite, whatever, uh, that they published was something called Herbie the Plump Lump. Yes, yes. Uh, which is very crazy satirical book. Well, which I, I would kill to write that character somewhere. I mean, it's, it's, I, well, I can appreciate very that. Funny. Uh, yeah. And, and, and Shane O'Shea, and, uh, which was a pseudonym for the editor, whose name escapes me at the moment, George something, uh, who was the writer, and Ogden Whitney, who's the, the illustrator of that great artist, um, basically carried that line. And then, you know, Schaffenberger was a, a heavy contributor to it between the end of his Fawcett stint. On Captain okay. Marvel, and, yes, and, great, and, great Captain Marvel artist, right, yes, right. and before he went to uh, to DC to do Lois Lane, doing Lois Lane, and then later in the seventies on Superman Family, Mister and Mrs. Superman, right. But Leibowitz, Jack, Jack Leibowitz, um, Donafeld's partner, was so horrified by this comic book that, that was published by this guy that Harry had given the money to. That you know, he just went absolutely batshit when when you know Bill Gaines decided, okay, we're gonna we're gonna go on one better because Leibowitz was kind of like uh, uh, the way L.B. Mayer was in Hollywood, where you know, like this paterfamilias who had to uh, uh, manage Hollywood's image to the world, which was why he tried to kill Citizen Kane. He tried, you know, he tried to buy the negative. Yep. turned him down. He tried to buy the negative of Sunset Boulevard from Paramount to burn it, and they turned him down. Leibowitz never tried to censor anybody else or repress anybody else's work, but he had that same attitude of we have to be careful of our image. We're all in this together, you know? And it was kind of an attitude that later he had to be careful about because it was restraint of trade. If they ever found out that someone like Jack Leibowitz was talking to Martin Goodman, you know? Sure. That wouldn't have worked out terribly well. Understood. Understood. So, Did Lebo, was Leibowitz the guy behind the whole uh, comics are good? Look, we've got Pearl S. Buck and all these wonderful literary experts kind of guiding our hand in the stuff we're creating. Um, Leibowitz started out as a socialist and he did have a profound social conscience. But the guy really responsible for promoting that idea was one of the, was one of the editors who was given the task of actually doing – uh, stuff like writing all of the um, <clears throat> excuse me uh, public service uh, things and that was Jack Schiff okay um, and at the same time as they were bringing on Pearl S. Buck and part of the the advisory council yeah that was like well that was like a half step before the, the comics code right because this was back in the early 40s mid, mid 40s and, and that okay. uh, during the war and there was a feature called Johnny Everyman that Jack Schiff wrote I I think it was Lee Elias who drew it. It it ran for about a year in World's Finest. And it was vetted. Specifically, that series was vetted vetted by Pearl S. Buck. And it was all about tolerance. And it was all about how we we shouldn't let the fact that we're fighting foreign wars 
uh, influence our uh, uh, treatment of people of that descent. Um, American Indians and their history and the, the, the subject matter that this thing covered in very accessible language was just astonishing to me. And that's why I think, you know, if you only remember Jack Schiff as the guy who, you know, had that fighting aliens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's interesting. And it's interesting that that's never been collected or, as I'm sure you're aware, there are so many of these wonderful professors at various universities that really are kind of examining these various runs of, of different published uh, comics and stuff. God, there was a 10 cent Archie or 12 cent Archie. That came out this year, yep. and it was, you know, I mean, and it was just an exploration of, you know, Archie Comics, basically late 50s, early 60s, you know, through the early 70s. Yeah, yeah. It was great. There's a lot of stuff in the libraries that, uh, I mean, even even the publishers themselves aren't aware of. I mean, you know, I had the job until they decided it was just better to have a senior-level executive go out and pitch things in, in, in person. Uh, and then, and then of course, eventually the, the current structure that you have now with, uh, with, with Jeff Jones. Uh, I was compiling something called the DC Properties Catalog, which was an attempt to summarize the major properties, each in a single page. And I worked on this for the better part of two years. And because they insisted at the studio that it be sent to them in hard copy, we filled four four-inch three-ring binders. <laughs> And we had just scratched the surface. I'm sure. Because we hadn't yet gotten to all the faucet stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or Charlton or, or some of this other stuff. Absolutely. I'm not talking about characters. And I'm not talking about book titles. I'm talking about features. Every eight-page series. Every funny wow. artist. Everything. And for a brief period, Paul was looking at me like, what? You know, because I was – referring to stuff that he wasn't even aware of. And he had spent more time in the library than just about anybody I knew, but there was stuff. But he was, you know, he, his interest was primarily the superhero stuff. Sure. And at one point, I found myself talking to Art Spiegelman on the phone because he was doing uh, something about um, uh, 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 humor comics in the 40s. And he'd called Paul and say, well, talk to Marty because, you know, and I was telling him about artists, cartoonists that he hadn't heard of. I thought that that you know Spiegelman would just be saying, "Well, you know, do you have any examples of so and so's work for you, right? Uh, for DC?" Sure. Um, I you know, but I, I I found myself inadvertently turning him on uh, to people that you know, as I say, he'd never heard of, and then sending him over copies. I don't know what happened that project but it was very it was a very very weird experience to realize how much stuff is in the archives that the people currently doing the stuff aren't even aware of wow and have you go on and <laughs> and be, be, and unfortunately there's no crossover between the comic stuff and uh, series or, or feature development in areas that aren't uh, superhero or fantasy driven and I can, yeah, that's, I it's difficult to get the studio, or at least it was then, to understand that there was stuff that they could do. Um, 
there was around the time that LA Confidential uh, was first being released on DVD and everybody was looking at it again I proposed Roy Raymond TV Detective I love Roy Raymond go on I'm a huge Roy Raymond as, fan absolutely as a series odd but true and I <laughs> well but also with the, the mystery element but I said sure but whatever fictitious city it was set in I don't recall what it was I said set it in L.A. Set it in L.A. in the early 50s. You know, and you, right. you see what I'm talking about, right? The whole Absolutely. The badge of honor thing, the whole thing. And I kind of thought that that would be a no-brainer because, you know, L.A. Confidential was a Warner Brothers picture. Uh, nope. Crickets. People at, DC, wow. people at D.C. thought it was a great idea, but... And, Man, you know, that's something to dust off and represent to the new regime. Maybe, maybe they'd well, listen now. No, but that's not the point. This is not, and then I wrote, look at me, I'm so, you know, I had a great idea. The, the point is, the result. <laughs> no, it's not. The point is. I hear you, man. The point is that. Well, wait, wait, hang on one second. I think I'm being. Can we stop? Oh, okay, can we stop? By all means. Yeah, yeah. Am I too loud? Yeah. I'm sorry. Nope. Sir. Okay. That's, not at all. I'm glad you told me. Sorry. My apologies. All right, I guess I'll have to snip that off. Can we um, – well, yeah, well, yeah, 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 and we can wrap it up soon too, yeah. Well, anyway, that, that's about it. You know? <laughs> I mean, let's... Well, no, so you were saying the point – yeah, the point is you're not – you weren't tuning your horn of, of great ideas. Your point is – That there's so much stuff in this library that is potentially useful only if you can see what can be done with it. Understood. But it often – it takes a creative person to be able to do that. So – all of this stuff was going to the creative executives, whereas what I think the, the more senior people were doing subsequently, uh, and, and I imagine what is part of what Jeff and his team do now, which is look, look for fits between people who have relationships with the studio, uh, what are called housekeeping production deals and so on, and material that they might, you know, want to tweak. Fine. Right, might be in might be in their wheelhouse and, right. and can exactly. exploit. Exactly, I imagine that's going on. Um, but of course, they're very. You know, I have no way of knowing that. Uh, what they seem to be doing at the moment, of course, is is developing relationships with people who, you know, do for them in television at least what what uh, Miles and Goff did. I mean, uh, Miller and Goff did. Right, right. Uh, or Goff and Miller to get the billing correct um, did on uh, uh, on Smallville. Smallville, thank you. And in Greg Berlanti, they seem to have found that person. Exactly. Yeah, Berlanti, uh, Kreisberg, and and Guggenheim. Yeah, right. they're like. I mean, God, they've got uh, four shows running right now. That's insane. Um, it's a legends. Well, it's about to be four because there's. I'm sorry. I, it's a relationship that's working with them. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. Because Legends of Tomorrow is about to debut early next year, and they've got Supergirl, Arrow, and Flash, and then of course there's Gotham right alongside of it and stuff. No, very interesting stuff. Marty, I'm going to let you go because it is late your time, and I understand, and I appreciate the time that you spent. We've got uh, – you've got four hours. <laughs> we absolutely have four hours, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, it would be great to continue this uh, in in a, in a month or so, and, and depending on your own schedule or if – you know, whenever. And I'm saying this to you on the record, and we can talk about it off the record, but uh, – uh, Let's count. No, thanks, let's, thanks for this four. Let's, let's count on it, okay? Excellent, man. No, that's great. Um, well, thanks for coming on. I know that I know the fans. Uh, this is a great holiday present for them. So uh, thank you. And as always, a font of information, great directions. I'm not I'm not being nice, Marty. I'm being honest. And I'm telling you, including Mark Wade, who listens to these conversations and enjoys them. 
No, thanks a lot. Well, I got to tell is, you. This is great stuff. All right, I'll just say this, and that is. Yeah, please. Yeah, wrap up. It's, thank, this thank, is your show, Marty. Wrap it up. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. And I'm really, really honored and flattered that people find it interesting. That's all. <laughs> That's, we got to come up with a name for this, like, recurring, because I've got, like, I do with Rucka, because he's in the spies, I call it the Rucka debrief. And Bendis, because he was the first one. I was thinking of the basement tapes, and it has no connection. But we ended up calling it the Bendis tapes, and obviously that's an you know who uses tape anymore. Um, but I and what else did I have? I I forget if we had a one for oh I used to, I, Matt Matt Fraction had fireside chats. I'm not really sure because one time he was sitting next to an open fire, and you can hear it crackling while we were talking. Ah, uh, I see. So well, so he he had the fireside chat. Well, offhand, I would suggest something alliterative that starts with you know yeah. a P pesky right the pesky podcast. There you go. Marty Pasco. Uh, great to close out uh, new programming for 2015 with uh, with this show. However, there is still one more word balloon. It's either going to come out on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, and that's going to be our best of show because uh, this has been an excellent year. I feel like uh, Trump. It's been an excellent year. I think you would agree. We've had some excellent guests on talking about some of the big topics in comic books and the geek world. And uh, we're happy to represent them to you all together. Uh, Highlights from various conversations. Uh, I've been going over a checklist, and it's going to be excellent. Now, uh, I'm uh, actually considering about 20 different guests that we had on War Balloon uh, this year in 2015 because so many interesting topics were discussed. And uh, I'll see uh, ultimately what fits into the usual big uh, economy-sized word balloon. And, uh, you know, this will be good. This is almost like uh, bathroom listening. Where you'll get you know like good good hunks of uh, conversation, but you know not the not the two hour love fest, but more of the highlights of some specific topics that were covered. But uh, yeah, I think you're gonna like it. So uh, look for the Word Balloon Best of 2015 episode that's coming up next. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, though. Brought to you by Instock Trades at InStockTrades.com, where you can find tremendous savings. This is the place to spend your Christmas money. Uh, great books at amazing prices. We're talking about things like uh, Koptara, Trade Paperback Volume 1, Fear Not Tiny Alien, Chip Zdarsky, Kagan McLeod. It's 50% off. It's only $4.99. And if you heard my interview with Chip, uh, you'll know uh, good stuff and uh, very, very funny uh, comedy from he and uh, McLeod. So uh, check that out. McLeod, I feel like a Highlander. All right, what else have we got? We got uh, Masters of Kung Fu, uh, Trade Paperback Battle World, Hayden Blackman. And Dalibor Taljik. Boy, man, I'll, I just murdered both of their names, I'm sure. But I enjoyed their uh, Master of Kung Fu Battle World story. And uh, that book is 45% off, $8.79. Um, check out Roach Limit from uh, my pal Mike Morisi and his excellent artist Kyle Charles. Volume 2 is 45% off. But get both uh, volumes, why don't you? Uh, but Volume 2 is on uh, sale for $7.00. And 14 cents, likely making the combination of buying the first two volumes a hell of a buy. You can get Greg Pak's uh, Superman Action Comics. Uh, he and Aaron Cooter are uh, doing excellent work. Volume 7, Under the Skin, is uh, 45% off, $12.64. And uh, how about The Woods? James Tynan the Fourth, great story from, uh, is it Boom? Yeah, that is from Boom, our buddies at Boom. 30% off, $10.49. Just some of the books on sale at InStockTrades.com. There are lots of after-Christmas uh, savings going on through New Year's Eve. 
Take advantage of it. Go there now, instocktrades.com. John Sutter saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners. Questions or comments about the show, reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com, or uh, you can follow me on Twitter under at John Word Balloon, or on Facebook under my name, John Suntress, and the Word Balloon Network. Thanks a lot for listening. Hope it's uh, been a good 2015. Looking forward, forward to a great 2016. But uh, join me for one last look at 2015 with uh, the Word Balloon Year in Review of uh, the stories and the guests that we talked to in 2015. Looking forward to hearing from you then and what you thought of the show and this show, in fact, and more. Uh, I'm always uh, interested in your feedback, so please feel free to contact me. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.